Hello, dear friends of the St. Timothy's family. My name is Reverend Deacon Jonathan Kamiri. It's an honor for me to open the word with you today. I praise God that we have the technology to do this, and I look forward to meeting with you, Lord willing, after the service on the Zoom call for all of you who are able to make it. Now, as we open God's word, I invite you to pray with me and bow our hearts as we ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word is good, your word is true, and your word speaks to us in, in deep parts of our hearts and deep parts in our imaginations. And uh, Lord, you bring salvation, you bring restoration, you bring uh, righteousness in our lives. And uh, I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that you would speak to us in such a way that would bring about this transformation into, into our hearts, into our minds, so that we can reflect your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, today we're looking at the text in Romans chapter 7, and so I invite you to turn there. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 21, I'll share with you a brief story about how years ago, when I worked for uh, someone who uh, had a, a really nice garden, I was a gardener, uh, and uh, this was a friend of mine, and this person asked me, uh, knowing that I'm a Christian, asked me, Jonathan, do you think you are righteous? It's both a very easy question and a very profoundly difficult question to answer. And by easy, I mean, you know, it depends on how your day is going. If your day is going well, if, you're, if you've done good things, you say, yeah, of course I'm righteous. And if your day is not going so well, well, you know what the answer is. And it's a difficult question if you zoom out and take into account your entire life. But underneath the question was, a, I think, a test. And I think this person was expecting that I would reveal some type of self-righteousness and pride. I think there was a point to prove Christians think they are better people than others. Now, the text that we're going to look at today is actually going to address this, this situation in a very powerful way. So I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7, and I'll read from verse 21, where it says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I'll read that again. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, this is a very wise saying. You know, you, you could read this out loud uh, if you were on St. Catherine Street or uh, Sherbrooke or, you know, Montréal in Montreal, and you read that aloud and people would look at you and, and give you a few nods with their heads and sort of agree with this saying that it's a very wise saying. Uh, in fact, I think you could probably just add the words at the end. Uh, you can add words like, so I, I'm so sorry, baby. And you could have a radio hit because people can relate to something like this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And that can be a tune uh, that would be very popular in, on the radio. And even in our secular culture, people can recognize this as a wise statement. Just the other day when I was walking downtown Ottawa, I met a fellow who uh, asked me if I, if I had food to give him. So we got to talk and I, I got to hear his story. And he told me that he stopped selling meth. Um, but at the same time, he had a very weak spot for women. And so on, on one hand, he's trying to do what's good. And yet uh, he has a lot of struggles in, in his whole baggage of life. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a funny thing that, uh, you know, on, on another hand, 
we can have a very common experience of, you know, you, you go to the checkout at the grocery grocery store and you go to pay for your groceries and you pay for your groceries, but uh, you don't add the five cents for every bag that you take. Why is it that we want to do the right thing and yet evil is always mingled in with the good? Like, why is that? That's a very good question to ask. Well, let's look at the text again, because the Bible will give us a very profound answer here. Uh, verse 21 says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The word law here uh, is supposed to imply a, uh, an established fact in the fabric of the universe, something that's very established. You think of the physical order of the universe. Uh, we speak in terms of law, the physical laws uh, which govern our universe, so to speak. And here, the law that Paul is speaking of is a, a law of the moral order of the universe, which re reaches right down into our hearts, the very command center of our lives. So what Paul is saying is human nature is designed for goodness, but bent with the rest of creation towards corruption. Human nature is designed for goodness, but bent with the rest of creation towards corruption. Now, what do I mean by, by bent? Uh, well, I love watching my son build towers with blocks. And uh, we've all had that experience, watching someone build a tower. And as it gets taller, as it gets really high, you know it's starting to tilt, and you know it's going to fall at any moment. Um, well, that, that's, that's what I mean by bent here. Uh, you can just imagine that our hearts are like that tower that are just about to fall, and they're always you know, inclined in that direction. They're bent towards corruption, bent towards falling into what is outside of God's purposes for us. Now you can read uh, Genesis chapter 3. This is where it all begins, where fallenness and, and brokenness and bentness begins. You can read that on your own time, uh, and uh, you know, because, because it speaks on turning away from the God who is life and when human beings chose their autonomy instead of the true and living God. And so human nature is designed for goodness, but bent with the rest of creation towards corruption. Now, maybe some of you are listening in and you're a skeptic or you're just tuning in for whatever reason and you're thinking, oh, Jonathan, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but I know some Christians and they would never say that about themselves. They'll say that about me because, well, I'm, I'm gay or because I like politics or, or money or I care about the environment or whatever, And but, but they'll never say that about themselves. In fact, they talk about grace and forgiveness and, and I know it's a cover-up. I, I think it's a way that the Christian religion manipulates people's thoughts to make them think they are good people when they really are just as bad as I am, if not worse. Well, my friend, if, if that's the case, I, I'm really sorry to hear, hear that. I'm really sorry on their behalf. Um, it, but it, it might shock you to find out that the Apostle Paul actually sides with you on this. The Apostle Paul actually sides with you on this, that a, a Christian should not be hypocritical and pretend that they have it all together. How so? Well, let's look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. See, this is the, an instance where you know, Paul is revealing that he's a, he's a Christian. He's not talking about a, an old experience before he was a Christian. He's a Christian. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And so just pause here for a second. Um, so what we see here is one of the foremost Christian leaders who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, yet he's experiencing war and wretchedness in his body. He's experiencing war and wretchedness. Friends, a Christian should never lose sight that they are uh, that there is a moral combat happening within. Uh, I know that's a play on words for those of you who know Mortal Kombat, uh, which is an old video game. But anyway, there is a moral combat and um, that there is resistance to God's will in, in our lives, in our hearts, even as Christians. Over the years, I've, I've walked with a number of young Christian men to fight pornography addictions. And um, like countless men, and, and we, we've talked about you know, all sorts of struggles and, and, you know, what leads to that and how to stop it, how to prevent it and all these things. And, uh, and it's just, you know, the, the pornography uh, epidemic is really uh, awful. And uh, you can see this text, why uh, it, it would, you know, people could relate to this. Uh, you can see why this text about experiencing war and wretchedness uh, can really relate to someone with a pornography addiction where their lusts overpower their abilities to reason and, and will as they exploit people's bodies to serve their own appetites in a context completely uh, removed of mutual love and mutual commitment. And because Paul doesn't state what is that he is dealing with, what it is, um, we are invited to take on his own words, to make them our own. You see when it says here, uh, you know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, we don't know what, what it is that Paul is referring to in, in his own life, but we can take on those own words. And you know, uh, the, this word body of death, it, it can play out in all sorts of different ways. It, you know, some of you experience chaos and, and disconnection in your bodies in a way related to maybe gender or um, disorderly sexual appetites or excessive consumption of food and drink or excessive accumulation of material goods the felt need for unnecessary wealth, or even just advancing in age where you realize, gosh, I, I'm, not, I'm not who I used to be. And while all these things have a very good fundamental purpose to them, we either indulge in our desires and appetites, which leaves God out because, well, who's God anyway? He doesn't understand my situation. He's far off in the clouds. I, I'm down here and I only have one life to live. So we indulge or we invent new techniques of meditation and mindfulness and curving our own desires through religious routines and, you know, which ultimately leave God out also. Why? Because, well, I can do this. I, if I try harder or if I persevere to the end, I have it in me. I'm a warrior. So we invent new techniques that leave God out. And Christians are not exempt from this. Christians do that too. We have our own versions of that where we turn to uh, indulgences or we turn to uh, inventing new techniques that, that help us overcome the, the war and the wretchedness that we feel in our bodies. And as we do that, we leave worse off. We don't feel alive. We don't have peace. Just brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness. And we ask, what can deliver me from this body of death? Is there hope for me? Friends, you might be asking that question. What can deliver me from this war, this wretchedness that I feel inside of me? Is there a hope for me? Well, what the Bible does next is both a surprise and 
something very unique. It affirms our predicament, but challenges our question. It affirms our predicament, but challenges our question. Let's read verse 24 again. It says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And listen to how Paul resolves it here. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what the Bible does is that it gives us a who, not a what. Notice the question here that Paul asks. He says, who will deliver me? Not what will deliver me. Not a religious technique. Not a spiritual technique. Not a philosophy. Not a what, but a who. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If the Bible gave a what answer, it would prove that Christianity is just the same as any other world religion, spirituality, philosophy, teaching, which all operate in a way that seeks to fix us on the outside, but it never really changes us on the inside. But the Christian story is completely reversed. It reverses, it changes the paradigm by providing not a what, but a who as the ultimate answer to our war and our wretchedness that we feel inside. And I know it can seem quite lofty to talk about God for many Canadians and Quebecois, and I get that. I get that. But the Bible tells us that God is best revealed in the person and work of Jesus, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. So friends, I, I invite you to look to Jesus, to really actually look into him, who he is and, and, and what he's done. And when we look to Jesus, we see that God himself entered our human predicament by taking on human flesh and experiencing a similar gap in his bodily existence, where he, uh, you know, being God from all of eternity, uh, became, became man and he took on human flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully man without compromising either of his essences. Now you might ask, how does that work scientifically? I, I, I can't say that I know. But I can say this, his, eyewitness, uh, his eyewitnesses speak of him performing miracles and exorcisms and, and yet they speak of him dying on the cross and, and sweating and, and eating and rising again on the third day and all those things, and, and so the, the Bible just shows, you know, the eyewitnesses in the Bible, the, the gospel accounts show that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so he, obviously Jesus would have experienced a gap in his humanity, in his godness, that he, being God, having from eternity, not knowing um, f f uh, finiteness or finitude, yet taking on human flesh and, and really entering limitations, the limitations of the human body, so that's who Jesus is, and all of this had a, a very special purpose. By Jesus' death on the cross, my condemnation is removed, and I am set free for life and peace with God. By Jesus' death on the cross, my condemnation is removed, and I am set free for life and peace with God. That is where life is found, in the person and work of Jesus. The cross and the gospel are where our Christian life begins, but not just that, it's also where it grows. It grows out of that. And we see this, um, this idea of our condemnation being removed and being set free uh, in chapter 8, which is the, the next little section here in, in verses 1 to 6. How about we reread that just for a second? Uh, so chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. See, their words of liberation has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, just pausing here, uh, this is talking about an exchange that the perfect righteousness of Jesus is given to us who, who walk uh, in, in the ways that he's prescribed for us, for us who, who are his followers. Uh, we are the heirs of, of, of God's righteousness through his Son. Verse 5, uh, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And here, just for a second here, uh, this shows the bankruptcy of, of humanism, just by the way. Uh, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on our, our efforts and our you know, abilities uh, that is, is what the Bible is, is saying is, is death. It's, it's in, an implosion. It doesn't work. If, if sin comes from inside of us, if we are the cause of, of, of the big problem in the universe, uh, which what the, is what the Bible is saying, uh, we can't necessarily be the, the solution or we can't think that we're going to be the solution in of ourselves. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So uh, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, my employer asked if I thought I was righteous, and I said no, actually. Uh, she was shocked. She was shocked. Um, I, I know that, that she uh, was uh, or had some Christian experience, either in Anglicanism or in some other uh, mainline uh, denomination, but um, she was shocked. She was not expecting that. Uh, but then I qualified, but I am justified. I'm not righteous enough of myself, but I am justified for putting my confidence in Jesus, who is righteous. Friends, no Christian can ever boast of their righteousness. Our righteousness is a gift of Jesus, both as a new status before God, but also as a new power given by the Holy Spirit to give us life and peace. That's what we see in verse 6. You know, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And we get this life and this peace in the midst of our inner war and wretchedness. It's not that we escape our inner war and wretchedness. The Apostle Paul still had an inner war and wretchedness. And yet he had life and peace by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I can tell you that Jesus is near the brokenhearted. He listens to those who cry out to him for grace. You can trust him because he died on the cross for you. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you love the humble, that we don't need to clean ourselves up. Uh, we don't need to um, you know, adapt all these new religious techniques so that we can impress you, so that maybe we can receive favor from you. No, Lord, you are gracious. You are loving. Your steadfast love endures forever. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your deep love for us today, that you would grip us with this truth that, um, that you love us despite our inner turmoil, and yet you give us grace to walk through it. You give us grace to, uh, to, to follow you and to, to receive your righteousness. 
I pray that you would bless every single one of us as we meditate upon your word the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.